Hello, it's Thursday 2nd of November. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, we'll be rounding up a hectic October by assessing the top eight travel and talking points from the 10th month of 2023. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So, we are in the final stretch of 2023, 10 months down, two to go. And while this is historically the start of a busy part of the calendar for travel, it's also a time when the jitters start setting in for the new year ahead. So, where are we at? Hannah and I have put together a list of October's top eight travel talking points, which will take us from Thailand to Indonesia, Malaysia to Vietnam, and Cambodia to the Philippines. So Hannah, as usual, I guess we should start by just recapping where we're at right now, what's happening with arrivals. Yeah, let's start with international arrivals. And, you know, as always, it's always difficult to compare like for like because different countries report different months in different times. But if we start alphabetically, we go for Cambodia first. From January to August, they hit about 3.5 million um, international visitors. So they're at about 80% recovery. So they are leading the pack in terms of absolute numbers for recovery. But like we said last month, like we've said before, this is very much a different kind of traveler. These are travelers mainly coming across the borders. It's Thais, it's Vietnamese. It is perhaps a not true reflection of recovery um, of tourism for Cambodia. Moving on to Indonesia, they hit about 7.4 million from January to August That's versus 10.7 um, in 2019. And they are about 69%. So they are... Not at the back of the pack, not at the front. They're in the middle somewhere, I'd say, in terms of recovery. Um, but of course, they've massively surpassed their 2023 target, which was 7.4 million. So, you know, they, they passed that ages ago. And that always leads to the question, were they, you know, ambitious enough? Malaysia, no update. Um, they've still not released anything beyond January to July. So they were at um, about 11 million then. Um, we can presume that that has massively increased over the past few months. Um, but how far that's increased is a mystery. Philippines is at about 3.7 million and they are really at the back of the pack in terms of recovery. So this is for January to September, even 3.7 million. They're only at about 61% recovery. And that's actually down. Last month, they were at 63%. Um, so we can see this, this decline. And even if you're looking at the monthly arrivals, um, September saw about 356 thousand right so we're only talking thousands hundreds of thousands for um for the philippines but actually they hit 353,000 in may so they're back down to where they were in may and it's actually the second lowest arrivals month um in 2023 so not doing particularly well there philippines in terms of arrivals singapore uh, at about 10.1 million um for january to september Versus 2019, they're about 71%. So, again, pretty good middle of the pack. But, again, if you're looking at those monthly tourism arrivals, it's slowed down. You know, at the beginning of the, the year, we were seeing 932,000, and then that leapfrogged up to about 1 million by March. But they have not really been able to push beyond this kind of 1.1 million mark there, month-on-month arrivals actually decreased in September. And you can put that against the fact that they had the F1 in September as well, which you would presume would be a, a draw for international tourists. Not enough to tip it over. 
in terms of absolute arrivals, perhaps in terms of hotel occupancy, ref par and all of that, that's probably a different story. But if we're talking international arrivals by themselves and not doing so great. Thailand, they're at about 22 million. Um, that's as of the 29th of October. <laughs> so they're probably one of the more updated ones along with Vietnam. Um, at 62%, that was actually 67% recovery again last month. Um, and we, we could discuss the measures that, that Thailand are putting in and maybe reasons behind that in a minute. Um, and lastly, finishing it off with Vietnam. So Vietnam have exceeded now 10 million which they're very happy about. Um, you know, they, they had this target of 8 million. Um, that's January to October. So they're 69% recovery. Again, you compare to last month, it's 79%. So we've actually seen three countries, Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, all decrease really that, that recovery rate, which is a little bit concerning, I think, right? Yeah, true. I think with the usual caveats that we always say, Hannah, about whether, you know, visitor arrivals is the ultimate metric for judging success of tourism, success of travel, but it is the one that governments and tourism boards quote, quote liberally and also use in, in terms of promoting through their local media in terms of how, they, how they're doing in, in the recovery sense. I was doing a bit of totting up the other day, looking at the total arrivals to the 10 countries of Southeast Asia and the ASEAN members uh, in 2019 and looking at what the kind of top level forecast really is for this year. So it's about 145 million arrivals into the 10 countries in 2019. If you look at the real top level, even if uh, all the 10 countries hit their absolute limits this year, we'll probably be around about 100 million this year, maybe not quite that much. Uh, that will probably be about a 70% recovery. So, you know, those recovery figures that you were quoting so far this year, I think the highest was, was Cambodia, about 80%. The lowest, I think, was Philippines, 61%. So, you know, across the regional average, it's looking at around about 70% for the full year as it currently stands. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. And I, I think even going into this year, you know, we were always realistic. It's it's not going to hit back, right? We've always said, Gary, you and I always slightly slightly more on the pessimistic, realistic spectrum um, that, that things are not going to hit back. Boil it hit back to 100% next year. Again, probably unlikely, but we can talk about that more towards the end of the year, I guess. Yeah, and I guess at this point, as I said in the intro, Hannah, you know, this is really where the jitters start setting in for 2024 because, you know, 70% recovery overall, if you look at that, that's not, that's not bad given particularly where it was one or definitely two or three years ago. But what happens next? You know, what is the direction for travel from here? What, you know, is it possible to expand back to, you know, that, that um, coveted 29 level in most countries of the region in 2025? Is that in 2024? Is that actually possible? So I guess we're going to see, you know, there will be the hope that the, the Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year Festival, gives a much better kickstart to 2024 than we saw in 2023. That kind of sets the ball rolling. Um, but for the last two months of this year, it's basically a case of just cramming them in, isn't it? Trying to get as many arrivals as you can. That seems to be the, the strategy for most countries at the moment. Yeah, it sure is. And that leads nicely to uh, our second big story, which of course is all about Thailand. And so much happened in Thailand. We were just saying, weren't we, off air, Gary? <laughs> you know, even the, they waived visas, obviously, for Chinese nationals and Kazakh nationals at the beginning of the month. That that already feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> um, so much has happened in Thailand just in October. You, you want to take us through all of the events that happened in Thailand in October, the, the big ones anyhow. Yeah, so I mean, you set it up perfectly there at the end of September. It waived the visa uh, entry for Chinese and Kazakh uh, visitors. China, because it's the largest market, Kazakhstan, because it's seen as one of the potential growth markets, particularly for next year. For a limited period, I think it's through to spring next year. So basically covers the, you know, the traditional um, busy period 
at the end of the year and the beginning of the new year in Thailand, which is the, you know, the peak travel season. That's set up neatly for the China Golden Week, which is at the beginning of October, hoping for a big boost in arrivals, not just of FITs, but by waiving that visa of getting more group travelers in as well. You looked at the air capacity and it hadn't really grown that much. So perhaps the expectations for October Golden Week were a little bit too high anyway. But then disaster struck. You know, there was that shooting in the mall in um, Siam Paragon in the center of Bangkok during the Golden Week. One Chinese tourist was killed, another was injured. Two other people were killed. I think it was a Myanmar national and a Thai national. Now, the issue about that is, is this, the shooting in, in a mall standalone probably wouldn't really affect tourism too much. But Siam Paragon Mall is a tourism attraction. I mean, everybody goes there. It's got probably among the best dining. It has a lot of entertainment variety. It's right in the center of Bangkok. It is very, very popular and with tourists from everywhere, from wherever you're coming to Bangkok. So this had a big impact on just how tourism was, was reported during that week. You know, sentiment dropped. The prime minister was photographed at the bedside of people who were shot and injured. Sentiment in China was already down a little bit because of social media issues regarding those two movies that I think we've discussed before about personal safety in Southeast Asia. So all these things coming together meant that it was just the worst golden week really for Thailand. Off the back of that, it's still got this target, as you said, Hannah, of hitting 28 million arrivals for the full year. Uh, I think you said that up to October, up till a couple of days ago, it's on 22 million. So it's still got that six million deficit. And it was hoping that a lot of those, that deficit would be made up by, by Chinese. So we still don't quite know whether that will happen. To mitigate that, it's made another move, hasn't it? Another incremental move to encourage visitors from what it sees as its key markets. It extended the minimum stay for Russian travelers, again, across this upcoming uh, winter period for, for the Russians. And it's now waived entry visa requirements for Indian travelers and travelers from Taiwan. India, I think, is quite interesting because the actual cost of a visa from India to Thailand was quite expensive. So if you're actually traveling as a, as a family or as a group tour, you know, that visa cost was, uh, was prohibitive. Will that actually mean that it's going to attract more tourists in the immediate future? Hard to say. I mean, it really, really smacks to me, Hannah. It's a bit like sort of the end of a financial year, isn't it, where a company tries to get in all of its outstanding invoices, <laughs> tell its staff, you know, sellers, make as many deals as you can, forget about discounts and just bring in as many deals as you can uh, to stuff up the, the, the final year's accounting. And then what happens the next year is another year. And it just feels a bit like that at the moment in time. I love that analogy. Yeah, that is um, exactly what they're doing. And I think, like I was just saying with the, you know, we, we're not seeing that huge increment that they were hoping month on month. And so they've just said, okay, well, let's see what happens with India and Taiwan. The Taiwan one actually surprised me that they can't already um, have visa-free access. I imagine that must be something to do with reciprocal visas. I haven't looked too much into that, but I imagine that's probably what that's about. Um, so that surprised me on that side. Um, but the India one is a, a bit of a no-brainer for them. You know, I think a lot of people in the tourism industry were calling for it. But like you say, are we going to see those immediate results? Of course, it all depends on their air capacity and as a lot of operators have said, in Thailand, one of the issues between Thailand and India, increasing the air capacity is that there are actually limits that the Indian government sets um, on their side about non-Indian airlines flying into the country, I believe. So it's a bit like when we were doing all these vaccination lanes and everything else, you, you can open up one-sided, but you, you need everything to be in place to really see the results. So I'm sure, of course, there's going to be an uplift in interest, but may, maybe we're looking towards 
next year, perhaps, rather than, you know, the, for the next two months. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there is, there's still this sort of determinative thinking that, you know, A plus B equals C. Perhaps it does, as you say, in the longer term, but immediately that's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's partially pushing expectations a little bit too high. Yeah. And it was, is interesting, this idea of them extending um, visa-free stays for Russian visitors, like you said as well. They've got this maximum of 90 days now, up from the 30 days. And it's clearly just targeting those Russian tourists during the wintertime, those snowbirds, um, as they're called, to um, come over and, and stay for a month or longer in Thailand. So they're, they're targeting all, all sorts of areas, right, all sorts of angles. Yeah, yeah. And I think as we saw earlier this year, particularly the, the the Russian winter was extended a little bit this year. We saw more Russians coming into the region. And a lot of people that were traveling to Thailand were then transiting and spending a bit of time in, in Malaysia or in Indonesia as well. I think Thailand wants to keep them for itself. <laughs> I think so. Dog eat dog world right now in uh, tourism for Southeast Asia. It's true. So that takes us to number three, Hannah. And this one, this is a good story. I'd forgotten this one was in October as well. This is uh, the Jakarta-Bandung high-speed railway, which opened at the beginning of last month. Uh, and it's quite a big deal, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. It is really, I think, the first true high-speed rail um, service in Southeast Asia. Massively cuts that, that kind of travel time if you were going by road. And I just love the name, whoosh. <laughs> does what it says in the tin and um, you know goes fast it's i mean the name's great but it is actually quite a convoluted acronym did you see what the actual acronym is <laughs> no go on have you got it there no hang on let me get it i knew you were going to ask me that <laughs> so whilst gary's getting that <laughs> it is really like the so we say the first high-speed rail but people are booking. They had a good number of people who, uh, you know, the, the second day they had 4,000 passengers who traveled on that. Uh, they were seeing average occupancy at the beginning, at least when it launched, about 50 to 60% of those total available seats. And you always see, you know, it, it's a process when these things arrive um, to educate people to do that instead of to fly or to take the, or in this case, to take, you know, to, to go by road. Um, so, yeah, it will, it will be very interesting to see the, the longer term impact of that. And of course, now they're talking about doing the Jakarta-Surabaya high-speed rail as well. And that one, you, I imagine, of course, it'd be a massive infrastructure project, but I can see that there would be so much demand for that. And it would be very interesting to see how that would impact on aviation, because I think the Jakarta-Surabaya route must be one of the, the top routes in Indonesia. Okay, so it, it it's it's a double-edged thing. So Wush is also expected to be like onomatopoeia of, of the journey of the train. But it's also an acronym for Waktu Hermat Operasi Optimal System Handel, which means time-saving, optimal operation and reliable system, Wush. <laughs> they should have kept with the long name. It's very memorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, of course, that, that's massive infrastructure. Project, of course, the other massive infrastructure project that um, opened up in the region is the Siem Reap Angkor International Airport has finally opened. They are really hoping that this will be one of the solutions to, you know, we were talking about Cambodia's challenges and the international air capacity has not really recovered. Um, the previous airport was more limited in the types of aircraft that it can receive. This new one can handle A350s, it can handle Boeing 787s. Um, so in theory, could really open up um, more of those long haul routes um, to European destinations or Middle Eastern destinations that they're really looking for. 
Absolutely. Any any word on access? Because it's actually quite a way outside of uh, CM Reap, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I haven't I haven't looked back on um, on Google to see exactly how long it will take. But I mean, that was the beauty of the last. Uh, you know, the previous airport was you know 15 20 minutes and you're in downtown i think this is more 45 minutes uh a little bit longer perhaps so in that way definitely not as convenient but you know these airports that are near the city centers face that issue in terms of expansion there's only so far you can go and ultimately you know they've they've got to move it to be able to grow the number of aircraft coming in if that's the path that they want to pursue you know getting more and more tourists into the country yeah, true. So that's four of our top eight down. Number five takes us into the airline and aviation sphere. Uh, a couple of good stories here, actually three good stories. Um, the first one relates to Malaysia, and that's the collapse of My Airline, which was a low-cost carrier, which was set up uh, what during the pandemic. It got its uh, aviation license, mm. I think, a year ago. Has been flying domestic yeah. routes, had selected... Uh, Bangkok, I think both airline, airports in Bangkok as its first international yeah. routes, um, was looking to increase across uh, Southeast Asia and even set in the media, I think a few months ago, which is it sounds very, very bizarre now, that it wanted to do an IPO within three years. Its ambitions overtook itself. The airline actually suspended operations last month. Some of its senior uh, executives have been arrested uh, its airline operating license has now been suspended. It's a big controversy here in Malaysia, Hannah. Navigate us through what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what everybody is scratching their heads and saying, you know, that there is definitely a lot of pressure, I think, on the Civil Aviation Authority of Malaysia, on MAVCOM, which is the Malaysian Aviation Commission, on how my airline managed to get their operating licenses and in fact their license was only renewed uh, I think the week <laughs> the week of or the week before um, it collapsed essentially um, and it was so shocking it, it was you know they just announced in the morning oh we're stopping flights today um, so you of course have got all these passengers stranded here there and everywhere I mean luckily you know it's they, they did not have the volume of passengers that say this was Air Asia that would be a completely different <laughs> be a catastrophe basically I think for, for passengers everywhere would cause complete chaos but you know still enough chaos for tourists being stranded in different places you could see the local airlines Air Asia in particular really maximizing that you know reaching out to the customers giving them discounts telling the staff to to come and apply to them Air Asia eyeing up their fleet can they lease some of those aircraft like you say arrests but they're, they're still saying even now, you know, they, they still might have a couple of investors that are interested. But quite frankly, I, they, they now have so many challenges to overcome. You know, would you as a customer trust to book with them again? I don't think so. You've got to refund all of those customers. You've probably got to find the staff because allegedly they have not been paying salaries and tax and so on for the employees. You might not even have planes because other airlines are looking at your planes. And are you going to get your license back? The license has been um, suspended. Um, and with all of this pressure on the aviation commissions here, I would think it would be very unlikely that they could get that license back unless they really have a very solid plan. And I think that was the problem with them. They didn't really have a plan. And they just wanted to, to build something that was a bit like Air Asia. You know, the, the senior executives were from Air Asia. They even painted the planes red you know it didn't really feel like it had its own brand identity its own unique offering and in a market that already has 
so many airlines with so few passengers for those airlines, you know, it was inevitable, I think, right? Yeah, I think you've encapsulated absolutely everything. A beautiful summary. Um, I think the interesting thing also, I mean, you, you've, you've talked about all the challenges for, for rebuilding that, that airline, if it's at all possible. But once you run out of money in any business, you know, banks and investors turn away from you, you've got absolutely no leverage. Looking again, even at the issues, as you said, about the brand and the customers, that kind of thing, getting that finance will be very, very difficult. And that actually, Hannah, I think that segues quite nicely um, to Vietnam and what's happening with Bamboo Airways, because... It's a similar situation, although Bamboo Airways is much bigger. Uh, it's been expanding, some would say recklessly, some would say it's been overambitious in recent years, but it's going through the same situation, isn't it? Although it's trying to restructure, is it essentially li- liquidated now? It's again suspended international routes recently, but it was. I mean, if you go back two or three years ago, I remember when we started doing the, the podcast, Henry, Bamboo Air- Airways was seen as one of, mm. you know, the, uh, as a symbol really of Vietnam's strength in its outbound economy. But that's all sort of gone to dust in in recent weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they made headlines when they launched their flights to London. Um, They had Frankfurt, they had Sydney, they had Melbourne, you know. And of course, we have seen this big growth in that Australia-Vietnam flight capacity as well. Um, And they, yeah, very similarly um, have announced that they are stopping any of their flights using uh, the Boeing Dreamliner 787s. Um, And you know, there's this this great quote. They've appointed a new general manager. Of course, they've already gone through quite a few leaders um, this year. But the newest one has said that this is the most extensive, strategic, and far-reaching restructuring project ever undertaken in Vietnamese aviation history. Um, so it looks like they they are kind of gutting the airline, I suppose, rethinking the whole thing and then starting again. Um, so they, they they are keeping those domestic routes. They're focusing on key trunk routes, Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh City, Da Nang. And then they said they will look at adding on more to international routes in Southeast Asia. But it looks like those long haul, those medium haul routes are completely off the table now. Yeah, totally agree. Which brings us to our third airline story. And I think this one is also pretty interesting, particularly when we look at the, the travails of, of my airline and, and Bamboo. Uh, Airways is Air Asia, and there's a, a couple of interesting developments in October about Air Asia. As we know, during the pandemic, it came very, very close to to, to going bankrupt. It struggled to to bring in new finance, but it has turned itself around to some degree. Set up this new company, which is called Capital A. It still needs to do a little bit of work on that branding because most people don't really recognize it as that. But it's set up these five business units now, of which um, the 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 low cost airline is one. It also has what it calls a super app. It has a logistics company, an aviation services group as well. But two stories that I think that in, in October that were, were quite interesting. One was that it set up this new strategic partnership with Garuda in Indonesia, um, particularly with CityLink. So there's going to be an interlining deal between AirAsia and CityLink, which is you know, a pretty big low-cost carrier, uh, a subsidiary of, of Garuda. And AirAsia said this will give it access to third and fourth tier cities in Indonesia, which is pretty interesting. There's a lot of analysis in the aviation sector at the moment about what actually this will mean going forward. How do, how do those airlines work together? But I guess even more interesting really is the story that appeared, I think, in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago that Capital A, uh, AirAsia essentially, was looking to uh, or had signed a deal with a, with a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company called Ethereum, with a view to listing on the NASDAQ stock exchange in the US, raising raising capital essentially for its future growth. Uh, an interesting story because this actually would give capital A or whichever part it is going to list, hasn't said that yet, 
you know, access to, to global funds. Uh, and it said, you know, AirAsia is always very good at its marketing. It paves the way for a public listing in the United States. And it offers global investors a gateway to participate in the growth of Southeast Asia. You know, beautifully phrased. Uh, what it actually means, we don't quite know. This has been lingering um, in the background for a couple of weeks. Yesterday, the 1st of November, AirAsia actually uh, issued a statement that this is correct, uh, is moving towards this agreement with Ethereum, uh, and it will actually make a, a more detailed statement once the, the details are confirmed. It hasn't yet said you know, what it is actually p- uh, proposing to list on the NASDAQ, uh, but obviously this will be a pretty big uh, capital raising uh, effort. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, again, you, you summed up all there is with Air Asia, but lots going on and so many other airline stories that uh, we just don't have time for this time. There's so much happened in October. You've got Mass Wings, Sarawak taking that over and all sorts of other fun and games. So let's move on then to our next story. And I suppose this is a story really of intra-regional cooperation, perhaps a lot of copy-paste. Um, so this just caught my eye. And I. so we had Cambodia and Malaysia announce, I think around the 10th of October, that they were going to launch a two countries, one destination marketing campaign um, aimed at the long-haul market, aimed at perhaps Muslim tourists as well. And, you know, with that idea of combining the two countries. And then literally about 10 days later, you had Cambodia and Vietnam and Laos saying, we're going to have a three countries, one destination strategy. Again, uh, marketing the three countries as as one. So, of course, it's, it is great to see that intra-regional cooperation. But I, I think often the, these kind of things are often said during... Uh, visits right? and when leaders are visiting one another's countries and yes we should cooperate more let's let's do this thing but i've not really seen many solid plans behind that yet a hundred percent agree hannah a nice diplomatic tool sounds great in media headlines in reality pragmatically what does it actually mean no, next to nothing i think <laughs> you said it not me <laughs> um moving on <laughs> philippines and you were talking at the beginning of the podcast gary about Using international arrivals, is that the best way to measure tourism's impact? The UNWTO has come out with this statistical framework for measuring the sustainability of tourism, um, which is essentially looking at the impact of tourism on the economy, on society, which I think is very interesting, um, and the environment. Um, So it's also looking at what they call the social dimensions of sustainable tourism and just tourism in general. And what is very nice is that Philippines has actually been chosen as one of the pilot destinations for implementing this um, new framework. What I'm a little bit surprised about is that Singapore (laughs) hasn't gone for that. You know, Singapore has been really trying to position itself as such a sustainable destination. Maybe they needed a country that had a very complex <laughs> a very complex geography and a complex uh, tourism setup, whereas Singapore is pretty straightforward. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think that's ab- ab- absolutely right. It is a very interesting way forward, and it really sets um, the tone for you know what is going to have to happen next year. Definitely, twenty four and twenty twenty five, a much greater focus, not just on e- on ecology of tourism, but on the social and community impacts, and you know all these issues will, will, will be debated quite a lot so far this year, but actually meaningful progress has to be made next year. I I think you're right about the Philippines. I mean, it's a very complex economy. It's a huge country, uh, has huge diversity of of wealth and poverty, uh, opportunities to actually 
make tourism uh, economically viable in communities where it's not already there? H how is that going to happen? How can you actually use a case study of a country where you can see, you can actually see positive change? You could actually make real positive change if it's done well enough. Um, I think it's a great idea. I think it's fantastic that the Philippines has been chosen. Uh, and let's hope this really works. And, and let's hope that we, we get a lot of reporting, we get a lot of transparency, and we actually find out what the actual on-the-ground results are as they go along, you know, as opposed to just, you know, a yearly report or a three-yearly report. Let's actually see how this is being measured as it goes along in real time, because I think more destinations in, in, in our region, and particularly in the broader Asia-Pacific region, uh, will we'll follow this very, very carefully. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it can only be a good thing, definitely a happy development um, for October. So moving on to our last story, and it's not a tourism story per se, but of course it impacts the tourism industry heavily, uh, which are weakening currencies. Um, so obviously sat here in Malaysia, I was at ITB Asia last week for uh, the Adventure Travel Trade Association, and it was very painfully clear that the ringgit was at a very low position against the Singapore dollar. But not only that, it's you know one of the lowest points versus the US dollar. The Indonesian rupiah has been weakening um, versus the US dollar as well. And there, there's always a, you know, pros and cons to this, aren't there, Gary, in terms of tourism? Well, absolutely. You know, currencies across Asia Pacific, you look at the yen at the moment, the yen is uh, around about 150 against the US dollar, you know, as weak as it's been for a long, long time. You referenced there the ringgit, I think it hit uh, its lowest figure against the US dollar since 1998. 1998 sends all sorts of alarm bells ringing because that was the Asian financial crisis when we saw this huge run on Asian currencies, which had impacts for several years after. The, the, the baseline story of this is just the strength of the US dollar. I mean, you know, the, the, the battle against inflation in the US and the hiking of interest rates has made the dollar so much stronger. The Fed has said today it's not going to bring down interest rates. It hasn't risen. They haven't risen again, but it hasn't, it's held them where they are. So this phrase that you keep hearing is, you know, higher for longer. The interest rates are staying higher in the Western world. And that has an impact on currency values here in this region. You hear a lot of countries, Malaysia is one of these that's trying to move away from its, you know, this inequity against the dollar by trading with China in, in Chinese yuan, in Chinese renminbi, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, the, the values are still pretty low. The, the, the US dollar is still by far and away the most traded currency in the world. It has so much purchasing power. The, the issues for, for tourism, as you said there, Hannah, are twofold. One, if you're traveling overseas, as you were in Singapore last week with the ringgit, uh, you just have less money in your pocket and your budget has to be more carefully calibrated. Uh, if you bring that into the supplier side, well, we know airlines are, are denominated in dollars. So, you know, that, that raises the cost for airlines. Uh, but also those that import, you know, so restaurants or hotels that are importing food or, or, or products from overseas or, or, or equipment, um, you know, that also costs them more to do so when you only have local currency to pay with. So it, it looks like it's uh, an intractable situation at the moment. There's no quick fix. The US dollar isn't going to come down anytime soon. So I guess we have to have to wait and see. I mean, the interesting thing in, in Malaysia, we have a government here who's only been in situation for about a year. It has made real attempts to try and tackle inequality, try and raise uh, local wages. But, you know, long-term economic policies are what's needed to actually strengthen your own currency. You can't do that overnight. So this kind of thing isn't going to go away anytime soon. It just means that it's very cyclical. If you look at the value of currencies in our region a year ago, and where they are right now, they're quite similar. But in between, you've had this kind of valley of, uh, of increase and drop. Being at the position uh, a year later to where they were at the end of 2022, given the fact that travel and tourism is back in the region, you know, it should have an economic boost. Uh, yet you still have weak currencies. 
Uh, that doesn't really augur that well for 2024. I'm sorry to be gloomy, Hannah, but I think this is one of the big issues for, for, for economists to watch um, for next year. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. So perhaps on that gloomy note, we'll bring the show to a close for the week. Um, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, and as always, you can catch up with all of our back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. We'll be back to discuss small travel and tourism in Southeast Asia with you very soon.